Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of OD Wire Radio. I'm Adam Farkas with you today, and here is Paul Farkas. And today we have Dr. Steve Silverberg with us. So, Steve, how are you doing today? I welcome to be with you. I'm very excited about this. Great. So, everyone should pretty much know Steve, I think, if you're on OD Wire. Um, Steve's had a, a long and uh, storied career, and actually, he's probably the only OD on our site who's an astrophysicist as well. <laughs> Would you say that's accurate? <laughs> well, I, I, I say to a certain extent, but a lot of people do take up space there. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I think I am uh, at least officially an astrophysicist as well as an uh, optometrist. Yes. Crazy. Well, Steve, today we're going to actually be talking about how to run and build a high-end practice. And I'll be completely honest with you. I didn't know what the topic of this talk was going to be until about 30 minutes ago. <laughs> that, that's <laughs> when, how much he looks at the outlines. That, that, that's how much I look at the outlines that Paul sends me. But, you know, it was interesting. When I did look at it, I, I thought, well, this is actually a great match because we have Paul here as well. And, and this is something that Paul knows about, too. Um, so I'm hoping that you guys can sort of interact with each other when, when I go in and ask you questions because you guys have far more experience in this than I do. Well, in fact, I can interject by saying um, at the very beginning of my career, when I was a young man and Paul was um, an older man, um, I took a lot of my um, influences from him, so he doesn't even know that. If, if, if I was an older man then, Steve, what am I now? <laughs> Positively ancient. It's going to freeze you the same. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so let's, why don't we get started here? And uh, so, so Steve, you know, right now you you have your own practice in New Jersey, and I'm actually looking at your website right now. And again, you incorporate a lot of high end features into your practice. But let's just start from the beginning. So, how do you establish a high end brand on day one, a brand that's sort of upscale and projects a certain image? A great question, and it has to do with what you do with every aspect of from the beginning of your career. Um, most ODs at this point in time cannot open a practice like I have cold. And the formula I have for them is first you have to build a, build a practice space, and from that day one of practicing, wherever it is, it might be in Walmart, it might be in private practice, it might be working for an ophthalmologist, you have to project an image of the same, of high quality, of professionalism, of explaining things to the patients. And what happens is over time, wherever you're practicing, you bond with those patients and you wind up being able to cultivate that type of patient to come to a higher-end practice eventually in the future. I think that's what every OD, OD's goal is, and if they do the right things at the beginning rather than just go through the motions of uh, seeing patients, refracting them, etc., prescribing contact lenses, if they go to the extra yard to explain things, explain it in a professional manner, Way back when, at the beginning of my career, I was in a commercial establishment, I owned it, and one person came to me and said, gee, you know, why do you practice in a place like this? And it got me to thinking, why do I? And I went on from there and eventually established my own practice a few years later, and it's quite successful now. So really, the answer is practice professionally wherever you are, bond with the patients, and after a while, you'll have a group of patients that are going to follow you wherever you go, no matter where it is. Right, and you just actually brought up the issue of location. So can you speak a little more about that, about the issue of location and, and sort of how you pick a place, um, both both the physical space as well as the demographics of, of the patients in the area? Yes, I wanted to um, establish a place in professional building. Whenever I went to a doctor when I was a kid, whether it be a dentist, uh, an internist, I always felt comfortable in that environment, and I felt when people came to me in the super optical, they viewed it as a store. 
Um, I wanted an office that looked like a professional office. I wear scrubs all day. So when they come to me, the patients don't feel any difference than when they're going to their physician, their gynecologist, et cetera, except I do not have stirrups in my office. Um, <laughs> so so the, the aspect is that to build a practice, I wanted to find a location in the professional building. As far as your questions go, in different regions, I think um, different locations apply. Here in the Northeast, I wanted to be off the main routes. Um, in New York and New Jersey, we have very, very big highway routes where a lot of the super opticals are and Walmarts and things like that. I wanted to be in a town that's had a high population, but I also didn't want to be right in front of these places. So I sought a location that was both in a professional office building, but slightly off the beaten track of the main drags. And I found the perfect location. Um, as we talk a little bit later, we'll, we'll emboss on that. Great. So that's actually an interesting approach. You know, it's sort of funny that you, that you mentioned gynecologist's office because in, in my town where I live, we actually do have a gynecologist's office in a strip mall right off the main drag. Um, I, and it's sort of an interesting approach that they're trying to maximize visibility. But what you're saying is that that's not necessarily the most important thing to do. But that, that's also true. The, the Northeast uh, does, has most of their professionals in office buildings, whereas you go around the country, many professionals are in downstairs locations in strip malls. Uh, so it's, it's different strokes with different folks. Uh, sure. That, I have um, relatives in Florida, and I've seen exactly what you mean in Florida, Paul. Sure, sure. Uh, well, one question I have is when you have that high-end practice, how do you uh, find the, the quality staff, and how do you train them once you find them? I think it's especially a problem uh, in the New York metropolitan area where people have a New York accent or a Joysy <laughs> accent. How do you weed out uh, staff members uh, that, that are appropriate for the image you're trying to project? Well, firstly, what I did when I first opened my office is um, essentially take the two best people from my previous location who did, number one, speak the King's English, number two, were immature people, let's say over the age of 35, knew what it was like to work with me. Then I would cultivate that. When I interviewed people, I would ask them, well, let's say, for example, recently, not at the very beginning, if somebody would send me a resume, I asked them to send me a resume with an uh, attachment as a PDF or a regular attachment. If they couldn't do that, I didn't want them as an employee because that, didn't mean, that meant they didn't meet my brand of being able to do things in a high-tech way. It's difficult, and you have to do, go through a lot of interviews um, and a lot of uh, feel for the patient, for the person, and just um, just from the interview process, I, I think I could uh, size up. I've made mistakes also. Uh, some people interview very well, and my bottom line is I can tell almost right away in the first couple of weeks whether somebody will fit my mold of practice. But if you look at my profile, you'll find that most of my employees, I have 10 now, and eight have been with me for more than 10 years. So I don't have that problem anymore, and um, it's because we're very stable, and the people we add on, we add on because we're getting busier and busier and just need more staff members. Right, and do you find this is sort of a... Uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want. You can plead the fifth. But my, my question is this. You know, you're looking for sort of employees who have higher tech skills. Do you find that it's difficult to actually give them the pay that they want? I guess you've had your employees for so long that they actually do stick with you. How do you actually get them to stay with you? Um, it is difficult because there's salary creep, as you know, uh, meaning people work for you for a number of years. You still have to constantly give them pay increases. It's hard, and the, the bottom line is, as I explained to them, is if I do better, you do better. So um, because we do fairly well on our gross income, 
um, I'm able to pay them a fairly good salary, in fact, a, a very good salary. Would you like me to tell some of the numbers so get people get the idea of how expensive this is to practice in the Northeast? Hmm. Well, sure, if you're willing to. Sure. I have two opticians. One makes about 70k a year. The other one makes about 65k a year. I have an office manager that makes uh, essentially the same thing. And even the soldiers, meaning the people who are, um, let's say, uh, techs or um, people who are helping out with contact lenses or people helping out in the dispensary, uh, get paid north of 15 to $20 an hour. So we do have a, a high payroll, but as a percentage of my gross, it's still less than the industry standards. So as you do better, you can hire better quality people and keep them. Um, Essentially, though, we also do a lot of rewarding, and um, I find that um, uh, mathematically works better to reward um, people with gift certificates, uh, uh, spiffs that we get from the contact lens and eyeglass companies. A person will respond very well with a $100 gift certificate, just as well as giving them a $2 an hour raise. Well, one is a continuing ongoing thing, and one is a, a nice job. You did a good job here, did a good job there. So a lot of rewards, a lot of uh, nice things at Christmas, and a one-time gift goes, I think, just as far as a increase in pay. Um, there's a lot of employees that will say, gee, boy, I'll, I'd work for you so much harder if I got more money. And that type of employee, you give them the raise, and a few weeks later they're back to doing things the same old way. So uh, personality of the person is really important. Right. So what advice would you give then for folks who, who want to set up a practice like this, but possibly have a limited budget? You know, there's so many expenses when you start up from furniture and equipment and obviously the rent that you're paying on the space. Uh, what sort of advice would you give in terms of a mix um, when, they're, when they're setting things up? Well, firstly, um, we've, in this day and age, when a person comes out of school, they have a lot of loans. We know that. And that the loan is like a mortgage in a home. I can't help them there because we didn't have that aspect um, 20, well, 30 years ago when I graduated. First thing I would say is that um, in order to save money, you can negotiate with the frame companies um, because, well, we have a dispensary, and you can get a lot of frames on consignment. Uh, I dealt with this company, which is now out of business, called Phoenix Optical, which set up my whole dispensary for free, and I was obligated to buy them, and they got a little bit extra money than dealing with the frame companies. But, for example, VSP, you can get the Altair frames on consignment. And other companies will work with you at the very beginning on very good terms. Uh, the big companies like Marchand, Safalo, will give you uh, very, very good terms of six months, sometimes a year. Um, at the very beginning, they gave me that, knowing that um, I would be a customer for life for them. Uh, the same thing applied with equipment. Um, I spared no expense. Um, again, at the very beginning, we didn't have um, VEP machines, no CTs, and things like that. But I certainly had a topographer day one. I certainly had a field tester day one. I had all my rooms, which in those days was just one, equipped with the Marco Epic type system of today. And um, I went into debt, but I bet on myself. Um, so um, essentially, the, the, the other thing I'll say is I did have a little bit of an advantage in that I had sold my super optical, so I had a steady stream of income coming in while the first year or two was going by. And uh, that would be a formula I'd have other people do also. Right. So if, if I had to say anything, don't spare on the equipment. You could um, skimp on the dispensary and glasses. Contacts, contact, as you know, are on consignment. Um, and the physical plant, um, I would start off small if you're one doctor and get a small space, but make it nice, and you can make it nice for a limited budget. And then as things um, evolve, we went from 1,500 square feet to 5,000 square feet a few years ago, and the practice um, has now doubled in gross in, in that short period of time because of moving. Interesting. Perception becomes reality. Right, and did you uh, 
make any get any concessions from your landlord i'm always sort of curious as to how people negotiate their leases because there doesn't seem to be one sort of standard way of doing it well, the first place I actually bought, because I did the math and found out that if I bought the condo and the uh, mortgage and the taxes, they're going to stay the same forever. Essentially, taxes might go up a little bit. So I wound up um, negotiating with the bank. I had a business plan, and they lent me money at a very good rate. Um, and so I bought the condo, which I then sold later on for a profit. With my present place, um, he had, again, real estate being what it is, this is a great time to do it. Uh, commercial as well as um, residential real estate is in depression all over this country, as you know. And this this uh, space was lying fallow for three years, and I kept on checking it out and talking to the guy and, and kind of negotiating with him. And over time, my rent is now probably less than people would have paid 15 years ago here because of the fact that the landlord was hurting and just wanted to get somebody in. And and I think that still applies, certainly uh, in most areas of the country, and uh, certainly in the Florida, certainly in the, in the Belt area, and certainly in the Northeast. Uh, real estate is cheap, and um, there's a lot of commercial property out there to rent and buy. And if somebody's going to do it, this is the time to do it, because you can really negotiate down. Um, something's better than nothing for a landlord. Well, you know, one point you made, uh, and that's an interesting one, uh, that you moved your practice. And sometimes optometrists have a dreadful fear of moving location, fearing that they're going to lose patients. Uh, what was your experience when you moved from point A to point B? Did most of your patients follow you? Well, it's only a quarter mile away. I mean, in our particular case, the, the space that was open for me was essentially down the block. In a big professional building, we take up the hall downstairs from another professional building. So it was no factor. Um, there are hassles in building any new place, Paul, as you know, and most of the hassles involve the township and getting uh, approvals on whether the carpet meets uh, standards or whether the building that you're doing meets standards, the electrical, the plumbing. But that's the only hassle I had. As far as patients, I had no worry because we had the um, patient base to begin with, and we were literally moving in the same town just down the street. I could walk to my other office, so that wasn't really a factor. However, when I moved from the super optical, I had a restricted covenant of more than five miles, and I was somewhat worried that patients wouldn't follow me. And I sent out um, notices that I had moved. I respected the restricted covenant. I went more than five miles away. And to this day, probably a third of the people I see are people from that practice from 1995, a super optical office. It's now a lens crafters. And they still come to me or their legacy comes to me, meaning people they've referred, their family, etc. So it can be done. And you can convert a Walmart slash Costco um, patient, not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, to a professional office, uh, high-fee environment if you bond with that person at the very beginning, which was that first question you asked me. If people think that you're smart, you don't have to be smart. Be, my, my formula is be nice and be good. And if you're super competent, that's um, all the more better. But that's not the first thing you have to be. Sure. Uh, it was my experience, too. I, I remember when we moved uh, one office from Queens, New York, Rigo Park, uh, out to the North Shore of Long Island because the uh, demographics of Queens was changing. So the, the market wasn't our high upscale market. So we, we moved the practice out into a more affluent suburb. Uh, and we had to take a lot of our old patients. In those years, there were still uh, aphakic patients that wore contact lenses, and they didn't know how to get to us. So the first uh, couple of months, we actually hired a bus that would meet the people at the old office and then take them out to the new office uh, 
until they got used to having their children drive them out to the uh, suburban location. Of course, we also had a Manhattan practice where many of them com commuted into Manhattan. So there was very little loss by moving the, the practice uh, far away. So for those that have a tremendous fear of moving, uh, provide you have a loyal following, patients will follow you. That, that's a great idea. By the way, I come from uh, Kikwarden Hills, and I went to school in Rigo Park for my elementary school, so I know the area well. <laughs> so, uh, oh yeah, you remember Alexander's Department Store there? We, I worked there. We, I worked we got there. there because it was easy, easy parking. We were right 60, next door. <laughs> 63rd Drive and yeah, we, Boulevard. Yeah, we were on 63rd Road, so there, yeah, there you yeah. are. So I, I'd like to actually turn the, the conversation now to uh, moving away from old New York um, <laughs> to uh, question about marketing because let's say you have your operation up and running now and you're going I mean the most important thing is is getting you know folks in the chair so let's talk about marketing strategies for a second so how do you create something that makes you sort of stand out from the the docs that are around you I tell you I I didn't stop from day one I must have been working 25 hours a day and it was from visiting the first day I went over to the police force which their uh, building was right next door to me spoke to the chief of police and and said gee you want to develop a vision program um, we sat down. Within a week, all the police officers and all the township employees were coming to me under this plan. I uh, went to the school system, spoke to the school system, joined the Rotary, joined the Kiwanis, ran ads in the local paper, and the ads would never, ever, ever, ever have price advertised. In fact, at the bottom it would say, look, your eyes are not donuts, no coupons. And uh, <laughs> people responded to that. So I tried to create a brand of, look, if you're coming here because you're, we're cheaper, don't come here. And obviously, um, that, that, that rang a bell. Um, every organization I joined, I was the uh, school um, foundation um, leader the first year, which meant that we um, raised money for the school system, the Kiwanis, the uh, Knights of Columbus, the Rotary, the Chamber of Commerce. You do it all. You speak at all these places, and you create your own, um, uh, let's say, following doing that, and you create it in a, in a professional way. Um, when you talk to people, I gave lectures at the school on, on astronomy, not on eyes, but they got to know me in that way, and then they can get to know you as a person. And when you have your Sunday meetings at, um, let's say, Chuck E. Cheese, and you're running an event for the Rotary, again, they know you as a person, and then you get to know your family. And when my wife is there and my kids are there, it, they're bonding to you in a different way than they'll bond to somebody else, and it becomes so much more easy over time, and it becomes a, like a uh, it snowballs. Right. So this is actually an interesting approach that you're taking. You hear so many folks who talk about marketing in terms of, you know, putting ads out in the media or using social media or using these automated mechanisms. What you're saying is the opposite, that you really need the boots on the ground and to go out into the community. It might have changed. It might change a little bit more now, but back then, which is was not that long ago, we're talking 17 years ago. That's what worked then. I probably would still do the same exact thing and then add to it. I also was always look. I was looking for a vehicle that would put my name in the public's eye even more. I found that vehicle, and let me explain that a little bit to you. And, and again, I think there's always something you can find. Way back when, I think, I think probably your dad would remember, Johnson Johnson came out with a lens um, called the Acadew, an AV marking to tell inside out. And yeah. uh, do you remember that, Paul? Yeah. Okay. And at the very beginning, I found not one, not one, not two, but 10, 15, 20 patients who wore the exact same lens couldn't wear that lens anymore. And um, I called Johnson Johnson and said, no, nah, it's the same lens. It's your problem. I don't know what you're talking about. And I spoke to some of my compatriots, and they all just passed it off. I remember seeing on Dateline on TV, uh, Bausch and Wallen expose with, a, again, you'll remember the Metalist lens, Criterion lens, and the one day uh, Bausch and Wallen lens were all the same lens. Sure. Well, I called, and I, I kind of then went to the Asbury Park 
press, the local paper, and said, you have a problem, and Johnson Johnson's not solving it. Uh, the article was published in like the sixth page, and then I got a call from the local NBC affiliate, uh, which gets to about only 30 million people in the in the tri-state area, and this lady called Roseanne Coletti, remember her name, Paul? Sure. Kind of a troubleshooter, said, gee, could I come down to your office? Came down to the office, I explained the problem with some patients there, went over to Johnson Johnson, which is over in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, literally about 15 miles away, and the head of J&J says, yes, we realize there's a problem, and then suddenly my name was all over the newspapers, gee, local doctor finds problem. Now, I got lucky because I found the problem that was a big one that was um, handled on a, a national level, but there's always something you could do, whatever it is. If, the, if there were something, I could find something today to bring my name to the forefront if I had to, and that was just the thing that helped me, and I believe it was 1997 that I did that, which is only two years after I opened up. Sure. That's so you got to yeah. be aggressive. You got to yeah. be aggressive and, and, and find uh, something and, and then and cultivate it. Yeah, and and what you're really saying is that third-party recommendation, especially prestigious media, mm-hmm. mentioning your name will bring patients to your office versus right. putting an ad somewhere saying I'm great, come come to see me. Right. I'm so, great, and uh, or I'm cheaper. I'm cheaper than everybody else. That's that's a that's the recipe for success. One thing I will say as a general thing um, uh, before you ask the question is you can't be all things to all people. You can't be the cheapest. You can't be the best. You can't be the highest tech, and also be the one that uh, gives uh, let's say contact lenses or exams away for free. Um, I don't think uh, Walmart has their way of doing things, and Tiffany's has their way of doing things, and Nordstrom's have their way of doing things. They all have their own customer base and clientele, and if you cultivate the clientele that you want, you'll get that clientele. So then the, so, quest- the question I have then is, so you know, as you're cultivating this, this patient base, you obviously need to have income coming from somewhere else, and if you didn't sell a uh, you know, location beforehand, typically that means you're working somewhere else simultaneously. How do you sort of straddle both worlds where you're working somewhere else, possibly commercial, and trying to build a high-end practice all at once? I thought about that. After about six months in practice, I was scheduled pretty much three to four days a week, but I had some free time. Uh, I knew some of the local ophthalmologists and retinal specialists, and I thought this might be a good segue. I actually approached the um, head of the retina center at Rob Wood Johnson and said, gee, would you like to establish a low vision uh, section here? He said, gee, well, this is a great uh, feather in my cap. I don't have to do anything. And this guy seems like he's aggressive and wants to do it. So I worked two days at Robert Johnson establishing. I was the first director of low vision there, and I stayed there for about four or five years. So, so I cr- created my own position. Now, when you have 12 retinal specialists feeding you patients, you're going to be pretty successful there also. And uh, then, again, those patients, they're, they're about 10 miles away, the, uh, the hospital, are still my patients to this day and age. And Robert Johnson still sends me patients to see if they – I gave that up to somebody else after a while because I just simply became too busy in my office. So I decided that I would brand my free time in a way that would be – um, commiserate with my practice, and that's practicing low vision in a professional environment. And again, a year later, we were on TV as the uh, low vision, um, let's say, um, head, and, and what we did there. I had, uh, again, that same uh, Channel 4 news there. So again, it was just segued. So my advice would be to work in an environment, if you could, that's similar to the one that you are cultivating in your brand and your practice. Be consistent all along the way. It's hard, but you've got to be creative, you've got to be smart, and you have to be aggressive. And if you can do those three things, I think you'll find the place. So, so you, can, you can also uh, you get, you get to these locations, but also if you can manage wherever you're working to be your own feeder source 
to become Correct. your own referral source to get the patients one way or other, ethically, of course, uh, to your practice. And you could do it in the commercial establishment also. Again, be highly professional. Uh, do it in a way where people know that you um, are better than the next patient. There's very subtle ways that we all know to do it. And I know you know, Paul, and I know how to speak to a person. It is a knack to speak to the uh, president of IBM differently than somebody who is a street cleaner and a kid who's 16 years old with pimples rather than a kid going to Harvard Law School. But somebody who's a real good people person could speak to that person at their level without that person realizing it. And the biggest thing, whether you pray, wherever you practice, is don't talk about yourself. If the patient asks you about yourself, answer the question and divert it right back to them. We all have friends who talk about themselves. No matter what we say, they, get, they divert it back to themselves. Have the patient talk about themselves. They love to it to do it. You might answer a question or two, but always have them talk about themselves. Always write down on the record what college they went to, what, um, what their interests are, and then say, gee, how'd you do on that softball game? Remember last year you were playing for the championship, weren't you? And they don't know that you wrote it down on your record. So little things like that, just the constant little things are what build it, not one big thing. I remember one motivational speaker once said, if you have to do one thing to, with patients, put a sign around their neck. Imagine that that sign says, make me feel important. Correct. So exactly. if you can manage to do that, uh, you, you got it made. And then at the end, you could say goodbye with good luck on the SATs, and, and next year I want to see that 1600, and you just assume they're going to come back to you. Right. Not because they got a coupon and uh, you were five dollars cheaper than the person down the street. Right. So let's switch gears here. You know, you mentioned old people before. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking across the table, but you mentioned you mentioned old folks, and um, so we all know with the population aging, there are actually practices that are, shall we say, perhaps in decline, or perhaps where the older doc is looking to to get out. Now, we know that one strategy, and I know that Paul did this way back in the Stone Ages, is to take buyout old practices, essentially, buy out their old records. Can you speak to that? Is this something that you've ever done to assimilate old practices into yours? I did it um, probably four and a half times. Um, <clears throat> again, back, uh, I might have been open for about five years. A uh, doctor approached me because he liked my office. He heard good things about me. <clears throat> he was in his 80s, but he still wanted to work. And we did a negotiation very, very quickly. It was a back-of-an-envelope type thing. I bought his whole practice, including the records, equipment, which was a nice peach, uh, old peroxidant <laughs> um, color. But uh, it filled up a room which he was going to work in. And he said, I just want to work. I want no responsibilities. That cost me $17,000, um, which I paid him $400 a month over five years. He produced income. We established a, a system where he got a percentage of the gross. It was a win-win proposition. He had a contract with a, a very large um, uh, fragrance company next to us. All the patients came to us. He didn't care about the money at that point. He sold his building and made millions off his building. While he was there and about to leave, another practice, again, about two miles away, he said, gee, why don't you come in? We're having a great time at Dr. Steve's office, and you can join us. He joined me also, same 17K thing. Uh, a practice closed down. An elderly man, is, um, uh, he unfortunately got cancer, and his uh, uh, wife came to me and said, look, I've heard so many good things. Could you take the records and take care of the patients? And so those were three practices that I assimilated, and they essentially at that point, which was then about six, seven years into my um, uh, new office, I was now scheduled two, three weeks in advance, and as they were leaving, I was looking for an associate who's now my partner of four years. Um, so absolutely, if you approach the old docs who don't want to manage anymore, they just, just want to come in, 
but they don't want to just retire and be what they were. They want to be what they are, and they could do that for a few more years, especially without any um, uh, managerial responsibilities to staff. And and by the way, um, that's where I got a couple of my um, my staff members that are today. Those people that were the head people in their practice are now the head people in my practice also. Fine people, and they were from the local community. And that's another point. Try to hire people from the local community who have a presence there. Uh, my office manager's husband's the head of the Pop Warner League. Uh, we have a sign-up, so always try to be local and have your staff cultivate patients to you also. Uh, little things. I mean, there's so many little things. Let me just give you one thing. When somebody um, is in our office and um, let's say they're getting glasses edged and it takes about 15 minutes, we have a deal with the Starbucks down the street. They bill me every month. We say, go to the Starbucks, get it whenever you want, because they're getting an expensive pair of glasses. And so what if it cost me $10, $15 what they get at Starbucks? That's the class. That's what look, Paul's Wine used to do in, in um, New York City and busing the people out to Nassau County that we do. And there's, I can list probably 15 other things, but the whole idea is that's what keeps the brand up, not um, nickel and diming people, but showing them that when they come to your office, it's going to be an experience. It's not going to be, um, okay, I'm going to wait two hours and, and then see this guy for five minutes. Right. You, you know, one issue uh, that many new practitioners have is that they have patients that can almost smell blood with a new practice, and they're going to try to get the best price and squeeze as much out of a practitioner as they possibly can. Uh, and so, so you have a system uh, where you have to be able to say no to a patient and let the patient walk. Absolutely, all the time. In fact, those people we both know, are, I call them non-performing assets. And... When you have the leverage, as I do now, and as I did really over the last, let's say, seven years, of not caring if they left, I don't want them to badmouth me, so you kill them with kindness, saying, gee, you know, I don't think we're a match anymore. Um, perhaps it might be better to go to someplace else, because this practice isn't about giving things the cheapest. Have you ever had to wait for an appointment? Um, do I call you on a Sunday night when, you, when your wife was sick? We're about giving good care at a at a reasonable price, but I can't be the lowest. And I think maybe we're not a good match at this point in time, but it's been, you've been a lovely patient. I'll be happy to take care of you, but um, we have to follow the rules of our practice. We're not a, a discount place. And I think that's a good approach that we follow. And I have, I've in my past fired uh, a few patients. I'm sure you have also, Paul. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I just have, just circling back, actually, to, to bringing the old docs into the practice when you buy their records. What's that, you know, a lot of younger docs um, have a problem with that sort of transition. So you have an older doc who maybe their hours are petering out or not to be morbid, they die <laughs> mm -hmm. and suddenly they're gone. Do you let patients know about this or do you let them schedule with that doc, even if you know they're not going to actually be seen by that doc when they come in? Well, um, when I took the two older docs, and they were, one was in his 80s and one was in his 70s, um, they loved it because they weren't TPA um, licensed, so um, they would actually call me in the room all the time to prescribe meds and take a look at the eye. So, and the, the, remember, the patients were coming to my office now, not their office. They already they were making this transition over, and they knew that um, the old doc um, was retiring. In fact, I'm, I'm starting to get questions. Are you going to ever retire because I don't want to go to someplace else? And that's pissed me off because I didn't get that uh, question 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I said, no, 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 I'm here for a long time, and I'll be here for a long time in the future. So it was never a problem because I, I brought a lot to the table. They didn't fit specialty contact lenses. They didn't treat eye disease. They were basically refractors and, and contact lens fitters. Uh, they were great RGP fitters and, get, and uh, hard lens fitters because this is what they did in those day and age, and, and they were fantastic in that. But um, I don't, it was never an issue. If anything, they were happy that uh, the practice was going up to another level, I think. So it was, it was not a negative, it was a positive. And again, when they met me and uh, I, I did use deodorant that day, they, um, they were happy to see me. Right. Well, you know, uh, you know they, they define death as nature's way of telling you to slow down. Uh, and it's, it's always an issue because elderly patients seem to be happy with the elderly doctor. Uh, and that's one of the dangers in practice, that practices can age with you. And you've been wise enough to take in young associates, and I assume you'll continue taking in even younger associates, mm -hmm. so the staff, the practice will maintain its youthful vibrancy. So exactly. even as, as you age, uh, you're going to have all, it can be all things to all people. There's a girl who's now graduating from school next year and lives in the town next to us, and she knows that she, hopefully, if everything works out well, will be joining our practice as an associate. Uh, we, we're, we're scheduled too far. I'm willing to wait another year because she um, you know, has worked in the office over the summer. She's uh, Her family's high profile in the community. Next town over, Marlboro, New Jersey, is uh, right next to Matawan. And that you keep on, it, it, like the older gentleman who like, was his name, mind if I tell you his name, Dr. Muscarello, because he's a great guy. He's still, he's 88, still pokes me on Facebook, to give you an idea. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if he's poking me on Facebook, he show why he, could, he can work in my office. Uh, he always said, Steve, either keep on taking two steps forward or you're going to take a step back. And um, his advice was perfect. Right, so it, it varies. You know, when it, it, it's a question of keeping a senior doc in the practice, uh, and that, that's one of the big issues on OD wire. What shall I do when I uh, when I buy out a practice and the the senior doc wants to hang around? Uh, and most of the time, the advice is out as quickly as possible because they can be a negative factor. But if yes. the, the senior doc can understand that he's no longer the boss and he has a very limited capacity in the practice, it might not be a bad thing to keep the old guy around uh, a day or two a week. And in fact, if, if he obviously he cultivated this relationship to try to get the young person in there, that decision should be made a long time ago. And if not, he made the wrong decision, and he was the one that was at fault. Uh, when I took my young associate, and we still have the same problem, obviously people... Um, my older patients will still want to see me, but now that he's been here long enough, they've seen him for an emergency or their family members have, and they don't mind seeing him at all. They would prefer me, but if my schedule is such that I have a, I'm five weeks out and they can get an appointment with him in three weeks, well, they'll usually take that appointment. But if not, don't wait. Um, but you, you have to, the older doc has to, I'm, I'm approaching 60 years old myself, and uh, I, but I, I'm going to do this forever because I can come, come down from four to three to two days a week as time goes on, and um, I don't mind it at all as long as I'm um, happy with what I'm doing. Right. Sure. Well, Steve, we're just about at the 40-minute mark. Do you have any parting words of advice for our folks who listen to the show today? Yeah, please just go into optometry with the attitude of what you want to do and then do it. Um, the only thing you can bet on is bet on yourself. Do whatever you have to create that vehicle. Be aggressive as you can be. Um, get an idea beforehand, a business plan. Let it work for you, and if it doesn't work, find something else that does work. Keep on trying, keep on trying, and 
go to practices that are successful, visit them, take the doctor out to lunch, find out what made him successful. Uh, a lot of people shared advice with me. Some of them was good. Some of them was not so good. But but just keep on going. Don't just rely. Just don't sit on your ear and expect the, the phone to ring and have people come into your office and love you because it's not going to happen that way. And that, I think that's what um, we've always said, thank God for average, because that's what the average doc does in every field. Every average person does in every field. Don't be average. Um, bet on yourself and try to be better than the next person. Well, that's really great advice. And I think that we can pick this conversation up on OD Wire. So if you're listening to this radio, archive, you'll see there's a little discussion thread going on beneath it, um, and I'm hoping that people give their input and we can have some more dialogue right on the site. Okay, great. I'll, great. I'll okay. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks okay, so much, look, Steve. Have Thanks. a nice day, guys. Yeah. You too now. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.